Does Job fear God for nothing? That was Satan's challenge at the start of the book of Job. Does Job honor and worship God simply for who God is? Or does Job worship because of what God gives him? Is Job just a fair-weather believer? Satan's challenge at the beginning of the book was addressed to God. And God took the challenge. Although if we read the beginning of the book carefully, we would notice it was God who prompted Satan to bring the challenge. It was God who asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. It was God who put Job in the spotlight. And then Satan brought the challenge. Job is just a fair-weather believer. And God said, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. We'll see if he worships me when I am all he has left. And in just a few verses, we watched as Job's life disintegrated. His property, his wealth, his family, and his health all vanished with just a few hammer blows from Satan. And in the immediate aftermath of that, Job responded perfectly. We're told he worshipped God and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. When Job's wife encouraged him to curse God and die, Job said, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Satan lost the challenge. Job did worship God when God was all he had. But then after the introduction, the book of Job took a very abrupt turn. When Job had time to sit and to consider his situation, he descended into deep darkness. And for 29 chapters, we heard a lot of shouting from Job. He became less sure whether the name of God really should be praised. He began to question whether he should accept trouble from God. Three of Job's friends came to sympathize with him and to comfort him. But what they ended up doing was criticizing Job and arguing with him. They were like a broken record, telling Job over and over, you have been sowing some sin. That's why you're reaping this suffering. What you need to do, Job, is figure out what you've done wrong, repent, and God will fix this mess you're in. And as the three friends blathered on, Job became more and more indignant. Not just with the friends, but with God. It was no longer clear, as we read, whether Job would continue to worship God. He was working himself into a position where he was so set On his own rightness, Job was just about saying God was not right. Job began to argue that God had got things wrong. He was not running the universe the way it ought to be run. And the evidence for that was Job's own life. 
Job is a good man and bad things are happening to him. Job called God to come forward and explain himself. And God did come forward, but he did not explain himself. At least not in the way Job had called for. When we looked at God's words over the last two weeks, we noticed God says nothing about Job's situation. He doesn't explain his purposes in Job's life. Instead, God took Job on a tour of the world. From the chaos of the sea to the beauty of the sunrise. From the gates of death to the storehouses of the snow. God showed Job the mountain goats giving birth and the young eaglets feasting on blood. God painted a picture of Satan himself, the king of the pride. God described him as a fire-breathing dragon. And God asked Job to consider, Job, could you rule this great wide world that I'm showing you? Could you have organized it in all of its complexity? Could you manage it, Job, so that even the foolish ostrich has its place and its part to play? And could you do that, Job, all of it with ultimate justice, so that even Satan and death answer to you and ultimately bow to you? Could you, Job, Never mind whether you have my power or not, do you have my wisdom? Can you see what I see, and do you know what I know? God did not answer Job's questions. Instead, he gave Job some questions to consider. And as Job considered those questions, he was humbled. He repented of his arrogance. He said, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. At the beginning of the book, Job was a true worshiper of God. He was. But he had never known what it was like to worship God when God was all he had. Now, the end of the book, Job does know what that's like. He has experienced terrible darkness and terrible loss. And he's come out the other side, not with answers to his questions. But he has come out the other side with a deeper knowledge of God. And so Job is content to trust God. He doesn't know what God's doing. But he knows, God knows what he's doing. One writer puts it like this. Lovingly, God has brought Job to see that the solution to his problem is not to become as God, but rather to cast himself as the trusting creature upon the care of his creator. And that trust in God is a massive defeat for Satan. Satan thrives on our lack of trust in God. It was lack of trust in God 
that led Adam and Eve to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. It's lack of trust in God that leads you and me to disobey. It's lack of trust in God that causes us to live bitter, angry lives. But when you and I trust God, we show the world that God is glorious. And Satan suffers a defeat. God is seen to be worthy of our worship. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. Even when God is all we have. That's where this book has brought us. But it's not quite over. These final verses of the book that we're going to look at this morning are not the main thing. The main thing in this book is the call to trust God. Even when life makes no sense. So the verses we're about to read are like the icing on a cake. The icing is not the cake. If we only lick the icing, we're missing the main thing. But the icing is still very, very nice. So let's read the end of the book of Job. We're going to turn to chapter 42, which is page 542 in the church Bible, or 838 in the large print. We'll read verse 7 to 17. And as we turn to this, you'll, know that the poet, you'll notice that the poetry has gone. And we're back to the kind of writing we had in the introduction. Job chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. Because they have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapach. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. 
This is God's word. Job has been humbled. He has worshipped God for nothing. Not for reward, not for reputation. He has worshipped God simply because God is God. And now, having got to that point, Job finds there is icing on the cake. And it comes in two stages. First, in verses 7 to 9, Job discovers he is accepted, honored, and useful to God. For most of this book, Job has been consumed with his own problems. He has been fuming about what he doesn't have. And as we pick up here, remember, Job is still without wealth, health, and family. His children are dead, and when he lost everything, his remaining family turned their backs on him. But now, God shows Job what Job does have. At the start of the book, God spoke about my servant Job. And we notice then, in the Bible, when God calls someone his servant, it's a title of great honor. In the introduction, God used that title twice of Job. And here at the end of the book, God says it four times. In verses 7 to 8, my servant Job. G.K. Chesterton said, we are taller when we bow. That's what Job is discovering. He has bowed before God in trust and in worship. And by bowing, he has become taller. He is more fully the man he was created to be. He is a servant of God. And specifically here, Job serves God by interceding for his three friends. Verse 7 tells us why Job's intercession was needed. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. Because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. Presumably God speaks directly to Eliphaz because he's the more senior of the three friends. Maybe he's the oldest. And by this stage in the book, we are well aware that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have not spoken the truth about God. But we ought to be a little bit surprised when God says, Job has spoken the truth about me. Really? What does God mean? Has he been listening to what Job said? Well, I think God is speaking here not just about the words of Job and his friends, but about their hearts. The three friends, you remember, had their theory about God. And they would not allow anything to change that theory. The three friends didn't want God as he really is. They preferred their idea of God. But Job wanted God himself. And when God finally spoke, Job listened. He listened He gave up his wrong ideas about God, and in the opening verses of 42, Job spoke the truth about God. 
The truth is God is not bound to rule the world in a way that makes sense to you and me. When we challenge him, we are speaking about things we don't understand. Job came to that point, finally. And so, Christopher Ashe explains it like this. The right thing Job says is at the end. But all his words have sprung from the heart of a believer. While the friends want a system, Job wants God. The friends would not have been at church prayer meetings. They had no need. But Job would if he could. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Those are the words of Job from chapter 23. And so, in verse 8, Job says, or God says to the three friends, offer sacrifices for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. That is remarkable. Haven't we just seen God cannot be manipulated? And yet, he commits himself to accept the prayer of his servant. Right at the end of the book, God is making sure we do not read this book the wrong way. You see, there's a danger when we read about God's power and God's wisdom and when we read about our own lack of understanding. The danger is we become fatalists. Fatalism says, whatever will be, will be. I'm just a chess piece in God's hands. So why be concerned about anything? Why make an effort at anything? It's all down to God, so I'll go limp. I'll be passive. I'll float through life. I'll just let life happen to me. But here God says, Job is my servant, not my chess piece. What Job does matters. What he does affects those around him. When Job prays for his friends, I will hear and I will respond. When we bow in submission to God, we are not chess pieces, any of us. We are servants. We are called to do good works, the New Testament tells us. Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we bow before the God of all wisdom, we become taller. We discover we are accepted, honored, and useful to God. We discover that our words and our deeds matter. We're called to speak the truth about God. We're to be God's instruments among our friends and family and colleagues, praying for them and doing good to them. That's one layer of the icing on the cake. Here's another in verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. In the verses that follow, we see Job being comforted, consoled, and blessed by God. We read that Job's brothers and sisters renew their relationship with him. And they do it while Job still has nothing at all. 
And presumably Job's wife also warms up to him again. Because along with gaining massive herds and flocks, he has more children too. His three daughters are mentioned by name. And their names indicate that they were beautiful. And very unusually for this time, Job gives his daughters an inheritance along with their brothers. Job lives to be an old man. And all of it is summed up with the words of verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. What are we to make of this end of the book? Were the friends right after all? If you do what God wants, is he obligated to shower you with blessings? Or as someone put it to me, if you go through hard times, is God guaranteed to give you double for your trouble? Well, the key fact here is that Job is blessed in the end. In the early chapters of the book, as we listen to the friends saying, you reap what you sow, we acknowledge that idea is biblical. We do reap what we sow. But where the friends went wrong was in saying, the reaping comes here and now. What the Bible actually teaches is, in the end, you reap what you sow. Here and now, God's people can experience lots and lots of bad stuff. And that bad stuff might not be reaping at all. It might just be bad stuff. And God's enemies can experience lots of sweet stuff here and now. But we can't call it reaping. They're not getting those good things because they deserve them if they're God's enemies. What the Bible promises is that in the end, we will reap what we sow. So the Bible is big on the idea of rewards. It talks about it a lot. But it also teaches us to be patient. God's faithful people are to expect rewards, but we must also expect to wait for those rewards. And we may well have to wait until the end. Don Carson says, all biblical writers insist that to fear the Lord ultimately leads to abundant life. If this were not so, to fear the Lord would be stupid and masochistic. The book of Job does not disown all forms of retribution. Rather, it disowns simplistic, mathematically precise, and instant applications of the doctrine of retribution. In other words, God is worthy of worship even when God is all we have. But we have God's promise that in the end, having God will lead to life in all of its fullness. He promises us an eternal world of blessing. 
And that is foreshadowed in a small way here in Job. As God blesses the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Sooner or later, we will all reap what we sow. When we bow before God's wisdom, and when we live to serve him, we will reap the comfort, consolation, and blessing of God. That's the book of Job. And as we finish this series... Here are four things for us to take away from this book. Maybe we could make these part of our outlook on life. First, this book presents us with the wisdom of God, a reason to trust him in the dark. One summary of the book of Job calls it an invitation to trust God's wisdom. That's just about the perfect summary of the whole book. An invitation to trust God's wisdom. Read this book and you will hear God saying to you, Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Shakespeare's Hamlet said, There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. That is true for you and me. And for every other human being. But God assures us there is no corner of heaven or earth that is unknown to him. And not only is every corner known to him, it was put in place by him. And it's governed by him too. God's people are called to live by faith, not by sight. And even when our circumstances make no sense to us, we put our faith in God's perfect vision and we live according to his word. One preacher says, we often suffer. We sometimes understand. We can always trust. Second, this book presents us With the grace of God. Instead of answers, he gives us himself. It's been said and pointed out that Job never sees the big picture. He sees only God. But that's what we really need for all eternity. God does not stay at a distance from Job. He comes And reveals himself. That's what humbles Job. It's not just God's power. It's the realization that God cares. That he's intimately involved with his creation. And how much more has God revealed himself to us? How much more has he shown his involvement to us? At Advent... What are we celebrating? God becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. Could there be any greater evidence of God's care and God's involvement? 
So when you and I find ourselves wanting answers from God, let's remember what he has given us. In the person of Jesus Christ, he has given us himself. Third, this book shows us what to expect from the normal Christian life. Difficulties are normal. Blessings are bonuses. One of the worst things that church leaders can do is to cherry-pick the success stories of Christians and then to present those as the normal Christian life. You know the kind of thing, stories where all of life's bitter lemons get turned into sweet lemonade. Has anyone ever written a book about the faithful evangelist who saw no conversions? Have you seen that book? Has anyone ever made a movie about the Christian who didn't get healed? Or the prodigal son who didn't come home. Or the marriage that wasn't put right. Thank God for the prodigals who do come home. Thank God for the illnesses that do miraculously disappear. Thank God for the door-to-door evangelism that brings converts flooding into the church. All of those things can happen and they do happen. But that is not the normal Christian life. Job is not the only place where this is presented to us in the Bible. For example, in the New Testament, Peter writes this to Christians. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter goes on to explain why fiery ordeals are not strange. They're not strange because we have an enemy called the devil who is seeking to devour us. The Christian life is a battle. And so, fiery ordeals of one form or another are not unusual for God's people. Job's experience might have been extreme, but it was not one of a kind. In the normal Christian life, difficulties are normal. Blessings are bonuses. If our hope in God is tied to circumstances, if we can only trust him when our lives are rosy, then we will not trust him for very long. Our trust has to rest on what God has revealed about himself, his wisdom, his power, and his love. Those things are not changed by any circumstances. Those things remain firm in the toughest storms and in the deepest darkness. Fourth, this book teaches us to look forward because 
The and comes at the end. Job is not our savior. Job died and Job has not risen again. Yet. But one day he will rise again. Along with every other faithful servant of God. God's people will rise again because Jesus rose again. And the New Testament says, in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We are to fix our hope on Jesus' second advent, his return. His return will mean the end of our journey. And we are to live looking to the end. C.S. Lewis said, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. The end comes at the end. There are blessings for us on the way, but even the greatest of those